There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with me, Colin Andrews, as Greg is away today. So this will be a solo run of our podcast. So Greg, I hope you're listening. You're missing out. Because last week, Greg and I talked about mean reversion. And we looked at what is happening in the bond market, the stock market, and how mean reversion could play out. But this week, we're going to go in a different direction. And when I say we, I guess it's me. And I'm really happy to have a great guest speaker join me today. Shay Katria is joining me. Shay is the Director of Investment Strategies for North America at Russell Investments. And he's been nice enough to join us for past webinars, client presentations, all kinds of things over the years. But when he told me that his favorite thing to do was to join our podcast, the self-proclaimed number one investment podcast in the free world, I had to have him back. So Shay, welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Shay, you and I go back a number of years now already. I was trying to think about it as I was preparing for our show. Like, it's got to be 10 years. Oh, yes. It has to be. Yeah, perhaps even a little bit longer. (laughs) Yeah. And like when we first started in this relationship, I guess you could call it, you were working out of Toronto, but you are not in Toronto anymore. So can you tell the listeners where you're joining us from today? Yeah, sure. So, So everyone knows I was in Toronto, lived up there, loved it for... 11 years, how time flies. And about the last, I guess, two and a half years, I've been working, obviously, home base, as many of us are these days, from my home office in Raleigh, North Carolina. Because I've been a little bit further south, a little bit different climate, Colin. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Well, different climate and all kinds of things. Now, you obviously left for North Carolina just pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. So that was good planning on your part. Can you tell us, like, what is COVID like in North Carolina? Just because most of our listeners are Canadian, so we're just kind of curious. Obviously, everyone has health concerns. It is serious. It's been interesting, though, when we were talking about it before we went live. I mean, it is a little bit different here in North Carolina. It's funny because you've got sort of extremes in the U.S., as I guess anywhere, in terms of the approach towards COVID. If I just think about the Northeast or the East Coast, I should say, of the US overall, you've got the one extreme, which is Florida, which has been pretty open for quite some time now in terms of its economy and facilities and what have you. And then you kind of have the Northeast, the New York, New Jersey area, which have been a little bit more restrictive and a little bit more controlled. And I think I like the experience that we've had in North Carolina because it's kind of a hybrid, I guess you could say. It's been in between. It hasn't been either extreme. And I think that's kind of the right balance. So we've been fortunate, I guess, from that sense that we haven't really been kind of whipsawed by either extremes. Well, you just pointed out, like, so New York, I guess, would be a blue state and Florida would be a red state. And so North Carolina is like a purple state. Is that right? Like red and blue? It is. Traditionally, it's been a red state. It's still, I guess, leans a bit more towards the red, but it's becoming more purple, Colin. And I think part of the reason for that is if we look at sort of the migration trends that have taken place, and I guess I'm part of that trend. Before Canada, I was 
originally from the New York, New Jersey area, working out of Russell, New York, actually, before heading up to Russell, Canada. So I'm part of that cohort. There's been a big group of folks that have moved from the Northeast to the Carolinas in general, and I guess the Southeast in general. So it has shifted as a result of those migration trends, I guess you could say. Well, I was in Arizona last week, and Arizona is one of those states that was a red state and now is a maybe a blue state. I'm not really sure, but I think it was from the same trend. Exactly, exactly. So the demographics are interesting, and it is interesting how things kind of shift over time, depending on what's taking place. Well, let's get into some questions, because I know you and I could banter back and forth for a long time, but we got to get through some things here. So number one, I wanted to ask you about the Canadian budget. And I know it's kind of strange, because you're in North Carolina, but you're covering Canada, but I know you're keeping up to date with all this stuff. But the Canadian budget that came out a few weeks ago Was there anything to highlight from that in regards to the markets, the economy? I mean, anything that Russell or yourself sees out of that? I'll be honest, Colin, I'm not like a budget hawk, (laughs) that's for sure. But what we're looking for from the budget was, well, what will it do from a rate of change perspective from what is currently being priced in? And on that sense, leading up to the budget announcement, there was a lot of speculation that there is going to be a significant spending increases above the baseline that was expected. And based on what we've seen so far, it does seem like there will be an increase in spend, but it's not going to be as significant as it was originally expected to be. So I think that was one of the key concerns that we were keeping an eye on, because if the spending was going to get ratcheted up at a point in time, as we know, where inflation pressures are still pretty extensive, and obviously we have the Bank of Canada, we can talk about that, what the BOC has done today, but that would have been problematic. And obviously, anything that adds further fuel to the fire, so to speak, complicates the central bank's job even more at a point in time where it is already pretty complicated. So on balance, overall, we think that the budget sort of net neutral from a macro perspective for the Canadian economy. At the margin, it's probably a slightly positive because there is a little bit more spending, but it isn't by leaps and bounds. Well, interesting that you brought that up because, yeah, the central bank in Canada, otherwise known as the Bank of Canada, recently raised interest rates by half a percent. Now, it's my understanding that's the first time in like 22 years that they've raised it by maybe more than a quarter of a percent, by half of a percent. So what are your thoughts on that announcement? And do you think that we have subsequent rate hikes around the corner? Yeah, it was very interesting meeting. And to your point, I think the last time it was 1990, might have been May 1990, but it was, I think 1990 was the last time that the Bank of Canada actually did a 50 basis points or a half a percent move. So it's been a while (laughs) since the BOC has had to make such a significant move. And that in and of itself is pretty telling in terms of the environment that we find ourselves in right now. And So in addition to announcing, I guess I should just add a little bit more color in terms of what they announced. There were two kind of significant things that were done. One, of course, as we touched on, was the rate hike, half a percent. So now the target rate is at 1%. They had dropped it all the way down to a quarter of a percent due to the pandemic. So now we're back towards 1%. The other point that they announced was the end of their the quantitative easing, which is basically an asset purchase program to support financial conditions, which they had stopped, but they were maintaining the size of their balance sheets. And now what they also announced is, I believe April 25th, they will no longer be maintaining it. So now they stopped growing it, then they were just maintaining it, and now they'll actually start to allow it to shrink. 
let's just go through that just in English for our listeners, because when you say quantitative easing, that's like the central bank is going into the market and purchasing bonds from the marketplace. And it's true, inject cash into the system. So now when you say that they're going to stop that, does that mean that they're now sellers of those bonds into the marketplace? Good question. So that's based on what we can tell in the language that they're using. They're not looking to sell. They're actually, because selling would be a more proactive. What they're really trying to do is more of a passive approach. And what I mean by that is, as we know, bonds have a maturity attached to them and they were purchasing medium, shorter term dated bonds. And as those bonds come due, they'll just let them mature. They'll just naturally let the balance sheet roll off, so to speak. But in the Bank of Canada's case, that's it. So they're not really looking to be aggressive sellers and cause disruption. They just want it to be a little bit more passive and just let it naturally run off over the course of time. That makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. So now you mentioned something earlier. You talked about inflation. I mean, inflation is a word that we hear about a lot. We've heard about it a lot for the last 12 to 15 months. I know January of 2021, inflation in Canada was, I believe, around 1.7%. And January of 2022 was around 7.5%. That's quite a significant difference. Now, where do you see inflation going from here in Canada and the U.S.? Good question. And obviously, a lot of the central bank outlook hinges on the inflation outlook. And we could, in a sense, maybe use the Bank of Canada's projection as sort of a baseline in terms of where they expect inflation to trend. It's interesting that, to your point, inflation is uncomfortably high at the current environment. The most recent inflation print in Canada was, I believe, 5.7%. So pretty rich number for Canada. And the Bank of Canada sees inflation trending down over the course of the next 12 months. By the end of 2022, they're looking for it to get more towards that four to four and a half percent range. And by the second half of 2023, they're looking for inflation to get more towards about the two and a half percent range. Now, what that tells us is that one is inflation is expected to trend down. And we would be aligned with that. We do think that a lot of the components that contributed to inflation, Colin, will start to come off. So some of what contributed to inflation, as we know, has been a surge in goods, demand for goods, as everyone was locked down, everyone ended up buying things that they would have needed for a home office or what have you, and goods inflation and goods demand surge, and as a result of that good inflation surge, and that demand met up with supply chains, which became broken in a sense because of what had happened with the lockdowns and the pandemic. So there was this complete misalignment that caused that surge in good spending, and obviously, which couldn't be met with the disruptions on the supply side. The supply side issues, obviously, the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, no one really has a control over, but the demand side, they do. And that's what central banks are trying to target. And the goods inflation, because of the surge in goods demand, we do think that ease. We're actually starting to see that some of the demands for goods are starting to come down from the really extreme level. So we do think that inflation, so as that goods demand has peaked, we also think that inflation trends overall will be peaking over the course of the next month or two, and then will gradually start to come down as, in a sense, the way the Bank of Canada is projecting. But it will still, by the end of 2022, whether you're looking at the inflation in Canada or inflation in the U.S., inflation is going to be above the respective central bank's target rate, which is why when we get back to policy, the Bank of Canada is looking to maintain a pretty forceful rate path going forward. They're not done yet, Colin. (laughs) 
I've had a number of meetings over the last few years about supply and demand curves and what inflation is and how it comes from that. And it's just a shift in the supply curve to the left means that the price of things goes up. So if there's less supply and constant demand, the price goes up. That's pretty easy to understand, I think, for most people. But what you talked about was maybe there was a shift in the demand curve too. So the price goes up even more. I'll give you a real life example. So I used to have a gym membership, Shay. You remember going to the gym? I remember going to the gym. (laughs) And then this thing called the global pandemic hit. And I ordered fitness equipment for my house because I was like, when am I ever going to go to a gym again? But now we're two years later and I don't know, I'm starting to think about going to the gym again. Now I have all this fitness equipment at my house. Isn't that kind of what you're talking about? Like there was a shift in the demand and... That's it. And maybe if I can just extend that view a little bit more. So there's the goods demands that'll come down, as we kind of talked about. But on the other side, so those that are concerned about the inflation outlook will say, okay, that's fair. Demand comes down, so goods inflation comes down. But what about the services side? That's the side of the economy that's coming roaring back. And services inflation should be soaring and therefore make up for what will be lost perhaps on the good side of things. And I think there's some truth to that to a point. So I think an example would be on the service side inflation story as the summer is coming up, everyone's looking to travel, everyone's looking to get out. Things have opened up, people are looking to get out and eat, go to restaurants again. So we can see a situation over the course of the next several months, over the spring and summer months. And so where we do see a demand on the services side really taking off. But I think a good way to think about or frame or services demand is this. Let's say about a year, year and a half, Colin, you hadn't gone out for dinner and now you're finally going out. Now, is there any way that you could eat multiple steaks in one sitting to make up for the steaks <laughs> that you may not have had previously? Probably not. Maybe you can have two steaks, at a thing, but you can't have like 10. So there's only so much in terms of services demand that can surge, right? In a sense. And eventually that's also starts to level off. So we're not saying that inflation concerns are overrated, far from it. We think they're real. There's still a lot of issues that need to be worked out, particularly on the supply side. And there are lots of other forces at play, but perhaps we're getting to that point where we could start to see some moderation from very elevated levels that were far from out of the woods. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's talk about inflation and how it relates to the stock market. I know a lot of people have said, well, inflation is really high. Cost of things is expensive, which is true. But don't investors benefit from some inflation in the stock market? And what's Russell's view on where the stock market goes from here. And when I say the stock market, I guess you could focus on the U.S. stock market if you want. So we talked a bit about our inflation view. And equities, what's interesting is that question does come up quite a bit. How does one protect their portfolios against inflation? What's interesting is you can slice and dice the equity markets in various different ways and looking at it in a lot of different asset classes. And then certain asset classes will probably do a little bit better than others. But generally speaking, equities tend to do well in an inflationary environment because if you think about it, equity securities in general, over time, if the company is able to pass on those costs as their input costs are rising, and if they're able to pass those costs on, then they should be able to protect their margins to a certain degree. So therefore, over time, doesn't mean it's not sort of mark to market to inflation, but over time, you do see that equities tend to perform just fine in an inflationary environment. Now, certain asset classes will perform a little bit better. So we do like that real asset space as an example right now, because those companies tend to be a bit more monopolistic, I guess, or oligopolistic, you could say perhaps, where they are able to 
pass on the cost much more seamlessly than more traditional equities would be in part because they don't really have a lot of competition and therefore they're able to protect their margins a little bit better. So real assets tends to be a good place as well that tends to do well during more inflationary times. So that's a space that we think that could benefit in an inflationary environment. Again, all these asset classes will have been flow, there'll be volatility, but over time, we think it could benefit. Now, Colin, as much as we talk about forecasts and what have you, no one really has a perfect crystal ball. And we were talking a lot about inflation right now, and we don't know what the environment will necessarily be 12 to 24 months from now. So I think the most important thing is having that diversified asset allocation for investors. I think that at the end of the day is the best thing that investors can do in a sense, to protect portfolios. And I think that's kind of the way to think about it. I think what you meant to say was what investors can do is come to the CM group and get some really good advice and get some really good planning and then construct the appropriate asset allocation and be really diversified and life is good. Isn't that what you meant to say? I was just about to say that. (laughs) So thank you for for saying it for me. Yeah. No, fair enough. I totally subscribe to the idea that there is no crystal ball. I find it interesting From the state's perspective, state side, I should say, when people say, well, Biden's got to do something about inflation. It's like, what can Biden do about inflation? That doesn't even make sense. What are your thoughts on that type of comment? Yeah, I mean, there is only so much politically that he can do. So I guess where the president feels he can have an impact is through perhaps energy policy. And obviously, we've seen him try to do a couple of things. One is the release of the strategic, the U.S. has a strategic petroleum reserve. So they made an announcement to release some of those reserves to add a bit more supply to the market. The other point that's currently under consideration right now, and it's kind of making the headlines over the last couple of days, is perhaps over the summer months, increasing the ethanol content from, I believe, which is typically around 5 or maybe 10%, around 15%. So you get some a bit more dilution of the crew that you're putting in your cars, and therefore that reduces the demand, so to speak, for crude oil, for gasoline. So that's something that's being discussed at the moment. But really, all those things are marginal, I think, more above and beyond anything else. And it comes back to what you were talking about before. It all comes down to supply and demand. And obviously, from a demand side of things, we're going to seasonally strong months. And as we get into the summer driving season and what have you, in terms of demand for crude. And on the supply side, we know because of the conflict, unfortunately, the conflict out in Ukraine, there is energy supply. There is a lot of questions with regards to the steady flow of, let's say, Russian oil coming to market and what have you. So there are these bottleneck considerations that impact the supply side of things. So I think there are certain aspects to this story that are probably outside of the hands of any politician for that matter. But policy can be put into place to perhaps address the energy mix. And that's obviously something that policy can address, but that'll occur over time as the policy evolves. And perhaps it gets accelerated now because of what's going on from a geopolitical perspective, and that might accelerate some of this. But again, that'll happen over time. The here and now is kind of what we just talked about in terms of the supply and demand. Well, and hey, there's this pipeline that they were trying to create. I don't know if you heard about it. It's called Keystone XL. I feel like that might help the US, but 
just a comment on that. I'm just kind of joking. Well, maybe not joking really, but (laughs) (laughs) anyways, let's move on. So Shay, you know, our investment strategy and philosophy, which you so kindly talked about, about being like diversified and focus on things you can control, like focus on your asset allocation. What if I told you, I recently watched a video from another advisor in my marketplace and it's a marketing video. And in it, they talked about a couple of things and I want to, I'm going to list them off and then I want to have a short discussion about it. Okay. So they talked about the need to be active. They're very much active versus passive. They talked how they tracked, and these are their words, dynamic flows between asset classes to determine supply and demand. In it, they constructed a macro navigation tool and used clearly defined mathematically calculated rules and applied a barbell strategy to their investment strategy, all to have lower volatility than the overall market. (laughs) When I say all of that, does this sound like this is an executable investment strategy from a single advisor? I don't mean to be hard on them, but I am going to be. Or is it that the market itself is better at controlling volatility than one single person tracking supply and demand flows with a macro navigation tool and mathematically calculated rules. That was a really long question, but I really want to get your take on that. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting framework that you've just discussed. Yeah, look, I think it gets back to what I had said before and kind of what you talked about, Colin. We at Russell, I think you know our approach. We don't try to overcomplicate things. We believe in having a framework. So perhaps a framework that you just outlined from this shop, that's a different story. But we do think a framework is important and the framework shouldn't be overcomplicated. You want to look at the macro trends. You want to get an understanding of what's happening from a policy perspective. You want to have a good understanding of what's happening from a valuation perspective. So just to give you kind of as a way of comparison, Colin, I think the best way for me to address this is to give you a framework from the way we look at things. And it's very simple. Of course, we have models and what have you, but it really comes down to cycle value and sentiment. Where are we in the business cycle? So where have we been? Where are we and where could we potentially be going? So we want to get a good understanding of the business cycle. We want to understand what valuations are, what are market valuations right now, and why are they the way they are at this point in time? So we're getting a good understanding of valuations across various asset classes. And finally, sentiment. So sentiment, you want to have a sense of in terms of What's the current market psyche? Is it getting overextended? Is it getting overbought? Is there too much exuberance perhaps or not enough? Is it getting oversold? We put those three buckets together and that informs us in terms of our overall portfolio approach. And above and beyond that, we think diversification across various asset classes is the best way to kind of navigate through all the volatility. So we don't try to overcomplicate it. Now, yes, we have models and tools and what have you, but by no means are we trying to overcomplicate things. And I think that way it's easy for us to communicate it to our clients what we're doing, and therefore clients can feel comfortable in terms of what they're investing in. And that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, you and I are on the same page on that. So let's talk about the cycle. We did an episode a few weeks ago on the boom-bust economy, and specifically Alberta is very much a boom-bust economy, very linked to a cycle. It seems to me that we, as you point out, you have no idea where you are in the cycle until it has actually already occurred. But doesn't it seem like we're probably somewhere near the peak of a cycle, whether it's on the side going up or the side going down? I'm not sure. Is that what it feels like to you? It's a great point that you bring up. 
and that really gets to the heart of a lot of the discussions that we're having within the investment team itself is the cycle and how mature is the cycle at this point in time. We do think that we're getting more towards the late cycle at this point. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And the reason we say that is because our outlook for the central banks, whether it be the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve, both central banks are basically singing the same tune. And that's that we want to get our target rates towards their theoretical neutral level and potentially even beyond it. So getting restrictive in terms of their target rate, right, to slow the economy down. And essentially, once the central bank is targeting, that's what they're headed. Well, that's basically saying we're taking the cycle towards the later stages at this point. So we agree, Colin, with what you're saying. We do think that we're getting towards the later stages at this point, and that'll basically become more validated as the central banks continue with their rate hikes, and which in turn, and let's not forget, why are they raising rates right now? Well, they're raising rates because the labor market is strong, right? So check. And inflation is super hot, check. And they want to bring down demand. So bringing down demand basically means you want to slow the economy down. So demand starts to come down. So if you're slowing the economy down, well, we can't be at peak growth levels anymore. And growth has to come down. And that doesn't mean that we're in a recession tomorrow by any means. We still think that growth will be pretty decent above trend, both for the US and Canada for 2022. But the rate of growth will be slower in 2023, probably closer to trend by then, above trend to trend, and then less than that beyond. But we're not really concerned about the business cycle in 2022, perhaps not even in the early part of next year. But depending on how aggressive the central banks are, that's when we start thinking, well, how close are we getting to a recession? Is it a late 2023 and early 2024? Like Those are the discussions that we're having right now. And it ties into our view on the central banks. Well, thank you for that. Listen, I should probably let you get back to work, right? I mean, you've got a (laughs) lot of things to do, but any parting thoughts you want to leave with our listeners on maybe what they should be doing just in general? For sure. I think I can't emphasize it enough. Sorry for sounding a bit like a broken record, but I think at the points like where we are right now, first quarter, obviously Canadian equities were positive, but generally global equities were down a bit. Bonds had a bit of a tough go at it. So there could be some clients getting a little bit nervous with what's going on from a geopolitical perspective, the war that's taking place. And I think having discipline is so important at a point in time when there will be volatility along the way, because there is a lot of things happening right now on the global stage. And the best defense that you can have is just one, you have to stay disciplined because it's those that make an adverse reaction to what's happening in the here and now, which tend to sway from their longer term objective. So having discipline is important. And then two, outside of having that perfect crystal ball, you just want to make sure you're diversified across multiple asset classes. That way you can kind of not experience all the significance bumps and bruises along the way. Then you can kind of weather the storm, so to speak. I like that you said weather the storm because that's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying that. So listen, Shay, thanks for joining us again today. Or thanks for joining me, I should say, because it's just you and me today. But I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I just thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Colin. All right. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.